Man, it is a privilege. It is an honor to be able to stand before you guys one more time. Amen. Uh, tomorrow's not promised for us. May we just be thankful for this breath that we have in our body that the Lord has given us that. Amen. Amen. Uh, some, some time ago, I had met a, a young man who uh, was in his mid-20s, and I got to know him. And after knowing him for a while, someone told me that he was an author. And that by the age of 20, he had written uh, a couple books, and he had some books on Amazon that were selling quite well. So I went and I, I got the book, and I, I read the book, and it was quite fascinating. It was a fiction book. Didn't agree with everything that was in there, but it was some depth to what he was presenting and the characters that he presented. And uh, I remember after talking to him and, and meeting with him, I said, man, I just want to get in his head and see how did he put together such a great story. And what made up that great book? And, and as I was talking to him, it was amazing just to find out how strategic he was in writing that book. And how much he poured himself into that book. And how each character that he represented in that fictional book uh, had helped, uh, had come about from, from his own life. From his experiences and from things that he perceived. And how every single letter, every single paragraph that he put in that book was something that he thought about and something that came out of experience. Oftentimes when we look at the Gospels and even when we read the Bible, we just kind of read it and we just say, hey, this is here and this is what it says. And sometimes we forget that the authors, they are, number one, being inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working through them and, and they're writing. But secondly, that they are writing every single paragraph, every single sentence, every single letter in order to make a point. And we've been going through the book of Mark, and we have been traveling through Mark chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2 to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the author is making a point. He's telling four stories. And in each of these stories, they're kind of similar in, in length and similar in style. And he's answering a basic question in the, and, and, and posing a basic question as we read this. And the question is, why in the world would anyone want to kill Jesus? Here's a man in chapter 1 who has been prophesied and who has been presented as the Messiah. And yet in chapter 2, we see that he is at conflict with people. And in chapter 3, we're going to learn that people actually want him dead. And all that he has done so far is heal people and do miraculous things. So Mark is intentionally writing this in order to make a point, in order to challenge us, but in order to teach us about God and his goodness. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse uh, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6 this morning. And if you would stand for the reading of God's word, amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. So Mark is continuing on with the themes that we have discussed and that he has been talking about in the previous chapter. And he's still wanting us to get a point and, and to make a point. See, he's been teaching us that religion does not save. That a relationship with Jesus Christ is what saves. Amen. And he's going to continue to drive home this point to us as we read. And the precious, authentic, inerrant, amazing perfect word of God reads. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them and how to destroy him. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, doers, and believers of his word. Amen. So, who here opposes a five-day work week? Does anybody? Does anybody oppose a five-day work week? Is anybody upset that we have a weekend? Nobody. Everybody is excited. Friday is the best day of the week when we're at work, right? Uh, Why? (laughs) Because we need a break. Because we need rest. Because we love rest. (laughs) But you know, a two-day weekend is a rather modern phenomenon. In the mid-1920s here in America, it started uh, to gain a little uh, popularity and to have a push as Henry Ford closed his assembly line and decided to give people Saturday and Sunday off. And from 1926 to about 1940, people in other places of employment began to slowly take that same stance and say, we're going to shut down for the weekend. In 1940, there were some major unions that came together and that made those demands that that would be regular for most business operations. And it was. Dating back, going all the way back in ancient civilization, there wasn't a a guarantee that you would have uh, five days off out of seven or or whatever. Most places would have you or or people would have you working for for 10 days, and they may give you a rest if they felt that they could afford it. But this idea of a weekend, this idea of having a break from work is, is Jewish. It is grounded in Judaism. (laughs) God is the one who first instituted among the Jews. Before that, it was not regular at all. So let's go to Genesis chapter 2, and let's revisit what we read earlier this morning, and let's look at God's institution of what is known, or what we call, the Sabbath day. The word Sabbath literally means to cease from. That is, to cease from work or to rest from work. It is from the Hebrew word, Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy because on it God rested from his work that he had done in creation. So we see that God creates the universe. He creates the world. And after the sixth day on that Sabbath, he he said, I'm finished. And he rested. Now, God did not rest because he was weary. For the Bible teaches us that God is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful. Psalm 121 says this, that he who keeps you neither sleeps nor slumbers. So God did not rest from his creation. He did not rest from his work out of weariness, out of a need. God does not get tired. He does not need coffee 
no dose. He's not in heaven saying, Gabriel, go get me an energy drink because I'm tired. He is perfect. But rather, he rested because he was done. He rested because his work was complete. To so read throughout the book of Genesis that those words that he saw, he created, and, and it was good. Like a great painter who has just finished a, a masterpiece and who knows that this masterpiece needs no more work and sits back and says, ha. Ah. So did God create the world and said, ha. Ah. It's done. But the Sabbath was set aside by God for a, a number of reasons. A number of reasons. We see in Genesis and Exodus chapter 16, that God has called Israel, he has called the Jews out of Egypt. And he is introducing or showing himself to them. And they're in the wilderness called sin. And while they're in the wilderness, they begin to complain because they're hungry. And, and they're upset at, at Moses. And they're like, man, we're in the wilderness. We were eating better when we were in Egypt. At least they gave us salad and we had fresh cucumbers. And, and, and God said, listen. Tell, my, tell them that I'm going to feed them. And he fed them manna, literally angels' food. And he told them in the morning, uh, as the dew of the ground came up, so would this food come up. And, and for six days, you would wake up and you would gather and you would eat for the day. And every morning, you would get up, wake up, and you would gather, you would eat on that day. But on the seventh day, he said, you are not to go out and gather. For on the sixth day, I will double what I've been giving you and you ought to take that portion in because on the seventh day, I want you to have rest. And then we read these words in Exodus chapter 20. As God has given out the Ten Commandments. These commandments are going to show God's people his heart. Going to point people to him. The fourth commandment is the commandment about the Sabbath. And it is the longest of all the commandments. And listen to what God says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the Sabbath day is a, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is within them, and rested on a seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He blessed it. So the Lord gave them a day of rest. This was unique to the Jews. This was one of two things that was really unique to the Jews, really weird to other nations as they were looking at the Jews. The other thing that was unique to the Jews was circumcision. So people who were not Jews and people who were from other nations, they would look at the Jews and say, man, those people are kind of strange. They are circumcised and they take the seventh day off and do no work. But why? Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one is the Sabbath day was a day that people would remember creation and remember the glorious God who created all things. The Sabbath day was a day that was connected to God, speaking the world into existence. Psalm 19 and 1 talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God and, and the sky his handiwork. The heavens point back to God, a creator. So that's the first reason. On the Sabbath day, they were to remember, they were to remember how powerful God was and how he was the God who created all that they saw. The second reason is, of course, as it says, it's for rest. It's to be re-energized. The Sabbath day was given in order that man would not work themselves to the ground in order that they would not be slaves of their own labor and slaves of their own toil. It was given in order that they would be restored. It was to be a day of restoration 
The third reason is the Sabbath day was to point to something and someone even greater. And that is Jesus Christ. It was to one day point and to show that Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately gives us rest. So that's a little background on on the Sabbath, because as we look at the book of, of Mark, we see that Jesus is chilling with his disciples and they're walking. And they're going through, the Bible says, some grain fields. And they're making their way. And Jesus and his disciples, they begin to do something. They're hungry. So they begin to pluck grain, heads of grain from a field. Now, that wasn't stealing because in the law, uh, in in the Old Testament, that was okay for a, a stranger to pluck grain from your field as long as they didn't take a sickle to it. And all of a sudden, we see the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are critiquing Jesus. And they're saying, look at what he's doing. Look at his disciples. Are, is that they're, they're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They're supposed to be resting. They're not supposed to be working. And look at them. They are plucking heads of grain from the field. They're critiquing Jesus. They're critiquing Jesus. Now, we've been talking about the Pharisees for the last few weeks. And the problem with the Pharisees, in a nutshell, is this. The Pharisees believe in self-salvation. They believe that if they do the right things, if they observe the laws, then they will find favor from God and be saved by their works. And that is not how one is saved at all. One is not saved by their works, but one is saved as a result of God summoning people to to himself, setting them aside, showing them how messed up and how filthy they were, and saying, but I want you to be my child. The Pharisees were living and and working as as self-salvation. So we see them here, and they're they're critiquing Jesus on the Sabbath. Religion binds. Religion grinds. Religion is a burden. Religion is a weight. I hope that you all are not following religion. Religion is what we want to reject. Jesus did not come to bring religion. He did not come in order that we would have a set of rules and say, if you keep these set of rules, you have a relationship with me. That is not the gospel. The gospel is you can't keep these set of rules, but I'm going to keep them for you. And if you acknowledge that I kept them for you, and you acknowledge that through me you will be strengthened to keep them better and better, And that your salvation is not through these rules, but through me, you can be saved. These Pharisees thought that they can save themselves. So what they did is they would take the laws of God. They would take things like the Sabbath and they would just exaggerate. They was making them a a weight and a burden. They had some ridiculous rules. And in Exodus chapter 35, for example, verses 1 through 3, we see God elaborating through Moses on the Sabbath a little more. He says the same exact thing. He reminds Israel to keep this day holy, to make sure that this day is set aside. He says, you shall not work, you shall not make a fire on that day, and the people who do will be put to death. So the Pharisees looked at that and said, oh my goodness, whoever is working on a Sabbath day, they're going to be put to death. And, and, and what they did is they said, well, let us define work. Let us define work. Let us make rules that say this is what it means to work on a Sabbath and this is what it does not mean to work on a Sabbath. So they came up with all kind of rules. In fact, there are some uh, Jewish documents called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And both of these are a long set of rules that they made off of three verses. 39, I mean, ridiculous rules that constitute a work. Rules like this. Ridiculous rules. They took that and said, if, if, if a mother picks up her child on the Sabbath, she's working and she's breaking the law of God. So if Amber was to pick up Nia because Nia was crying on the Sabbath day, in the eyes of the Pharisees, she was sinning. Amber being my wife, Nia being my daughter. Amen. <laughs> They said, if, if a person has something in their hand, an object in their hand, and they're throwing that object in the air, it's okay if they catch the object with the same hand. But if they switch hands and catch the object, they're breaking the Sabbath. They said, if a family member or someone you see a stranger 
is in the road and they fall and they hurt themselves, but it's not to death, you are to leave them there until tomorrow. <laughs> but if you think that they've hurt themselves bad enough that they are about to die, go get them and help them. It's ridiculous laws. They even had it down to how many steps you can take in a day. They said on the Sabbath day, you can, step, you can make 1,999 paces. But on the 2,000th pace, you are breaking the law of God. Ridiculous. And as a result, Matthew chapter 23 verse 4 says that Jesus was confronting them. And he was saying, you have, you have made serving God a burden. You have made following God a, a, an impossible feat. You have people carrying around this burden because you are, are making uh, things that are not a commandment, a commandment, and the commandments you're misinterpreting in order that they may, may, may feel your own desires. It was a, a sad thing. So Jesus is, is coming and he's trying to free people from these rules, from these laws. He's trying to show people that following God and being a, a God worshiper is not a burden if it's done right. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Remember, Jesus is really fighting against these religious leaders who have duped everybody into believing that salvation is about outward performance, outward piousness. Listen to these words. Way different than what they would have been hearing preached in synagogues on a Sabbath day. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is through his ministry freeing people from the weight of religion. He is freeing people from having to keep all these tedious laws and, and walking in fear because they're afraid that they're about to break some law that the Pharisee is doing. He says, come to me and rest from your labor. Rest from your self-salvation. Rest from your works of righteousness. Rest from trying to impress people and please people. Rest from trying to prove yourself to everybody from keeping up with this ridiculous list. And come, follow me. I am not a burden. I'm not a burden. You know, in dialoguing with a number of unbelievers uh, and sharing the gospel with them and, and working with a few, one thing is in common when I talk to them about Christianity and the gospel of late. I've been noticing more and more this theme and, and, and them seeing religion as a weight. I've been noticing more and more that most people, uh, when you talk to them about Christianity, the first thing that they point to is, is Christians. And a lot of the things that they talk about is stuff that that's ridiculous. Stuff that Jesus would never put on us. A lot of women at your workplace and your job, the reason why they don't want to follow Jesus and, 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 and the reason they don't want to come to Christ is because they have this notion that being a Christian means no fun. Being a Christian means no makeup. Being a Christian means you can't dance. Being a Christian means you have to stay in the house and, and go to church on Sunday. You got to watch PG-rated movies. That's the only movie you can watch is a, a rated G movie. Being a, being a Christian is about wearing this long skirt and not wearing earrings and looking like a cookie cutter. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. And then you go to some churches and that's how it feels when you go through. Everybody's got on white. And while they're in church, they're talking all this church lingo. And everybody looks saved. And they're in those same people when you walk out the door. Not five minutes after church, upset with you. Or they'll wait till you get outside of the door to tell you off. Now, sister so-and-so, you know that was my seat. I sit there every Sunday. And excuse me, I'm going to retract on that. That's not even what they trip about. You know, that's what they trip about, but that's not what they tell you. They tell that to somebody else. <laughs> you know, sister so-and-so, she sat in my seat today. She called herself a Christian. I mean, have you seen the media lately? Have you seen some of these little shows that's on television and how they show Christians? Man, if I was not a Christian, I would not want to be a Christian. One second, it's a church scene. The next second, it's a fighting scene. And it's between the church folk. Gospel is not a burden. Throughout Mark, Jesus has been showing that I am good news. He's saying, follow me. I'm good news. <laughs> I'm not good advice. I'm good news. The scene, be, a, a couple of uh, scenes before this, in verses 18 through 22 in the book of Mark, we see Jesus, and he's sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. He's, he's fellowshipping with them because he wants to see them as good news. And, and they're having a celebration and they're hanging out and they're just, you just get this picture of them just enjoying life. And Jesus is just showing them the face of the Father and saying, man, God is so worthy to be followed. And then you have the religious leaders just sitting back critiquing him, cramping his style, hate. Listen, people who are stuck in religion are critics and joyless. I'm not saying that they can't be happy, but they're joyless. That's what we see in this passage. These Pharisees are joyless. Think about how foolish this is. Number one, they're following Jesus around on the Sabbath. They're breaking the law with Jesus as they follow him. But they don't make mention of the fact that he's probably taking too many paces. Because they're so stuck on critiquing him about the things that they really don't want him to do. And then they're just joyless. They're, I mean, listen, they're just hating on him. Uh, uh, number one, for, for eating, he's eating these grains. But as we see later on in this chapter, in verse 5, Jesus heals a man who has a withered hand whose hand is not in use, and he does this on a Sabbath, and what do they do afterwards? They go and they try to kill him. They start plotting to destroy him. If you don't have joy right now in your walk with Jesus, if following Christ is a burden, when following Christ becomes a burden, it's because we are looking to our works and we're looking to ourselves for salvation. It's probably because we have made a list of rules and demands for ourselves that Christ has not put on us. Or we have allowed someone else to make it. Let's look at how Jesus heals us from religion. Look at what he does. Verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which, is, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is, is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus then, he goes and he tells a story. And he points them back to an Old Testament passage, a passage where David is the key figure. Now, this is around the time where David was running from Saul because Saul was jealous of David. He saw the anointing that was on God and he wanted uh, to, to kill David because he did not want David to, to be in his position. 
So he, uh, David has just fleed from Saul and he is with some men and they are starving. They are hungry. And they run into the tabernacle, the place of God, and they go to a priest. Now, this text says that the priest's name was Abathar. Jesus says in the time of Abathar. And if you read the, the passage carefully that is on display in the Old Testament, you will know that Abathar was not the high priest at the time, but rather it was his father, Abimelech. But what Jesus is doing here is not paying attention, trying to pay attention to detail, but rather he's speaking in a general way because Abathar would soon take over his father's post as high priest and he would be a high priest for a very long time. And he really became kind of a famous high priest. Back in the Old Testament, they didn't have what we have today, scriptures, verses, and stuff like that in their scrolls. But the way they broke their scrolls down was to talk in terms of ages. So in their scroll, if they were looking for a passage or referring to a passage, they would refer to the passage by what everybody knows. So the time of Abathar. So Jesus is saying, have you not read about what David did? During, in a time of Abathar, when Abathar was getting ready to take over, how he ran into the tabernacle, how he was starving, and how he asked the priest for some bread as he was running from his life. Now, this bread that he asked for was the bread of presence. It was sacred bread. It was set aside. This bread was put into the tabernacle, and when it was placed into the tabernacle, the priest could not eat it for about a week's length of time. After that week's length of time, they will replace the bread with some fresh bread, and then they will eat the old bread. The bread represented the very presence of God. It represented how, how Israelites were to have a fresh relationship with God, how they were to keep things fresh with God by eating from God daily. So this bread, no one was supposed to eat, only the high priest. David is not a priest. He's not even a king yet. But David, out of starvation, asked the high priest to give him some food. Now, David and the high priest, both they have some decisions to make because they know that David's not supposed to eat the bread. But the priest, out of mercy, out of seeing that David is starving, chooses to break a direct command of God because he knew that a person's life was more important than a rule. The rule was not to be so strictly put out there that it cost someone their life. He knew that there would be some times when people were, were hurting or there would be some extreme circumstances that God will understand. So Jesus, by pointing to this passage, is doing a couple things and we're almost through. The first thing is he's doing is he's freeing people from religion and showing people their religion by pointing to his authority, by pointing to his authority. He says, listen, have you not read? This is an insult. This is a straight up insult to the Pharisees. Have we not read? <laughs> Wait a minute. Do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the religious leaders of the day. Not only have we read your Old Testament, but we made 619 more laws then the Old Testament, to make sure that those laws weren't breaking. Have we not read? So Jesus was messing with them. <laughs> Have you not read? Have you not read what David did? This is huge. Because Jesus is, is from the lineage of David. And David received a covenant from God that because he was a man after God's own heart, that one day, through David's lineage, there will be born a king, and this king would establish his kingdom from ever. So Jesus is, is, is right here pointing them towards his divinity. He's pointing them towards his kingship. He said, wait a minute, you think that you're the authority figure on the Sabbath. Well, I've got news for you. You're not the authority figure of the Sabbath. And you're not the only one who can interpret what happens on the Sabbath. David and this priest made a decision because they had to make the decision because there was a, it was a merciful act. So listen to what he says. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's still pointing to his divinity, the son of man. The son of man. That was a way of, of calling himself uh, the, the promised Messiah. 
Daniel referred one day to, to the Son of Man coming in his glory. And he says, is the Lord of the Sabbath. That is a huge statement. He's not saying Lord over the Sabbath, that he can make decisions, but Lord of the Sabbath. So he's pointing them back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's pointing them back to the verses that we read. He's saying, I'm the one who instituted the Sabbath, fools. How are you going to try to confine me and constrict the one who created it? You're interpreting it wrong. You don't even see it. You can't see. You're blind. Religion has you messed up. That's what Mark is doing throughout his letter. He is showing us that Jesus is the true Messiah. And not only is Jesus the true Messiah, Jesus is God. We read earlier in chapter 2 that Jesus is the one who forgives sins. And that upsets him. Jesus is the one who can heal someone of leprosy and who can make a fever get frightened and run. Jesus is the one who can cause a, a, a man who is demon-possessed to be at peace. He's trying to show them that your rules are, are what's governing you, but what should be governing you is me. You should be submitting to me. And instead of asking the question, why are you doing this, you should be asking the question, how can we be saved? So he says, man is not, uh, let's, let's go to verse, I want to get to the exact, verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, Jesus is saying, the Sabbath was made to help man. It wasn't made to hinder man. The Sabbath was made to restore man. It wasn't made to confine man and put a burden on man. It was made to refresh and revive and renew. Jesus came not to put us in bondage, but to revive us, to make us new, to give us a joy that the world does not have, to put a smile on our face, and, and for, we, for us to know that we have hope even in the midst of suffering, that we have hope even in the midst of pain, that we have a Savior who cares deeply about us. So when we suffer, we suffer differently. We suffer even in the midst of our soul. There's rest in suffering because we suffer with the one who gives rest. See, your, your co-workers shouldn't have more joy than you if they don't know Jesus. And, and if they do, you're missing something. I should not be driving to work or to the office on, on, on a Tuesday morning looking the same way as other people on a Monday morning. Man, I got to go in, right? The Lord has called me to pastor, to know him, to read his word, to enjoy him. If I'm upset driving to work, something's wrong. I've been constricted and confined to religion rather than to relationship. There is a joy that comes with following Jesus because we're not following a set of rules. We're following a person who cares deeply about us. So he points to his divinity. He points to his person. Christianity is about a person. Let's continue. Second thing he points to is he points to mercy. He points to what matters most. The good news is good news. Because it is, it, is, it is news of mercy. This priest had mercy on David. Because he knew that David was starving. Jesus is doing his father's work and they're going through the grain fields. And they, they're hungry. So they pick up some food in order that they will be nourished. The Pharisees should have had mercy on them. But they can't. And look what Jesus goes on. And again... He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're following him to accuse him. And he continues. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So he puts it back on them. He says, wait a minute. On a Sabbath day, if you see someone really struggling, someone is dying, is it, a, is, a, is it okay to help them? And they don't respond. They're silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger and greed at their hardness of heart. And the reason he's angered and grieved is because Jesus, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, listen, uh, God told Israel, he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the rules that were given, they were given in light of that. Every single rule was to help them, every single law was to help them to love God and to love neighbor. But they made the rules themselves God. And they didn't have mercy on their heart. He was grieved. He was angry. He was upset that they would let a man die in order to keep their religion. Ooh, it's a word in there somewhere. Hmm. Well, let a man die to keep their religion. Look how he says, and look, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus, the gospel is about restoration. The gospel is about renewal. The gospel is about people. People having hope. That's why Jesus came. Isaiah, chapter 61, just a reminder of what the coming Messiah was to bring and to do. This is what Jesus would later, later quote that would almost cost, cost him his life. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit. Faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That is a picture of revival. Jesus said, I came for those who are poor. I came for those who do not have hope. I came for those who are, are molested and broken and from broken homes. I came for those who are seeking to, to find their fulfillment in things that, that, that is not in me. I came for those who, who, who feel that they've got to hustle to make a living. I, I came for that prostitute. I came for that stripper. I came for the ones that we often walk over. He says, listen, I, I came to, to heal the brokenhearted. I, I came to give liberty to the captives. I came to give beauty for ashes. To replace that nasty, broken life with a beautiful, beautiful position in me. They could not accept that because they wanted business as usual. And some of us in here today are going about life as business as usual. Mark is trying to hammer in a point. Mark is trying to hammer in a point. He's saying it's not about this rigid list. When you go by a rigid list, and that's what you call having a relationship with God, just checking off, I do this, I do this, I have a relationship with God, you will end up hard-hearted. You will become self-centered. And you will critique the very gospel that saved you. You will be more concerned about your pet peeves, about things that don't matter. I, talk, I was talking to a pastor who's on a mission field and, uh, now, and he used to pastor in America. And he went away to a foreign country. His church is doing incredible, doing some great things in the gospel. And he said, I said, well, why did you leave America, pastor? He said, I got tired of arguing about the color of our carpet. I wanted to see the gospel work. We spend a lot of time arguing about things that don't matter. Oh, what a glorious day that will be when our heated conversations is over 
who's going to go and share the gospel with that person? No, I want to go. No, you stay back. No, I want to go. No, you stay back. This my... Oh, what a glorious day that will be when the contention among the people of God is not silly, small, contrite things, but things that make an eternal difference. Oh, what a day that will be when our hearts are broken for the state of our neighbors, the state of our coworkers, the state of our family members. Oh, what a day that will be when we no longer see religion and church as something that we have to do, but something that we must do out of, a, uh, out of what God has done for us, that we can't help but do it because of God's goodness. Has the gospel restored you? And has it led you to want to restore others? Have you stopped toiling from your work? See, the irony in this passage is this. The Pharisees were getting on everybody else for not keeping the Sabbath when they were the ones who really weren't keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was about resting in God's goodness and God's grace. And though they were resting from these rules, they were not resting in God's goodness. They were still toiling by thinking that they can earn their salvation. So we no longer keep the Sabbath as Christians. The Sabbath was Saturday. Uh, it actually started Friday when the sun went down, and when it's a Saturday when the sun went down. And as Christians, most Christians, we don't do the Sabbath day. Uh, we don't completely stop from working. Because we believe that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is making an argument and he's saying that Jesus is our Sabbath. That Jesus is our rest. While the principle of taking time to get rest and gathering together for worship is an important principle. And we should not work ourselves to the ground. And we should take time out to to. to to think about the God of creation and, and to relax and to spend time with family and to worship. It's not a, a law, so to speak. But rather, we gather together on Sunday morning because Jesus rose on a Sunday morning. Chapter 3, verse 6 says these unique words, troubling words. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them to see how they might destroy Jesus. So after Jesus does this amazing thing by restoring a man's hand, you would think that they would be celebrating, saying, listen, I know you broke a rule, but this is amazing, man. How did you do that? I've never seen nothing like that in my life. Instead, they leave embittered, and they leave upset because their religion, <laughs> their principles, their own law was broken. All right? And they go out, with some Herodians, some pagans, some Gentiles, and they began to say, let's put him to death. Let's put him to death. And they did. They put him to death. We're, we, we know that Jesus was hung on a tree because he wasn't religious enough. Jesus died because he was not religious enough. But while Jesus hung on that cross, he said, it is finished. <laughs> My work is complete. My work of atonement is over. Your sins have been paid for. You are no longer held condemned because of your falling short. But you are set free when you look to me in faith. You no longer have to offer sacrifices. You no longer have to go into the temple and go through a priest. I am your high priest. I am your rest. You can have an intimate relationship with me. It's done. As if, as if God, in the same way that God sat back after the sixth day and said, it's finished. <laughs> I'm resting. It looks good. I'm satisfied. Jesus did the same thing for me and you. And that's why we gather on Sunday morning. We do not gather on Sunday morning because we want to be saved. We gather on Sunday morning because we believe in Jesus and we are saved. 
And we're not saved because of our works, because of the way we look, because we're a committee member, because we're preachers, because we, we serve on a, a board, but we are saved because Jesus' back went against the board. And because he took God's wrath for us. And when a person believes that, they are free. They are free. They're free to live. They're free to live. God is challenging us. Don't be religious. Don't be religious. Parents, don't be religious. Let your children see that it's about having a relationship with Jesus. Let them see that it's not about what happens on a Sunday morning in a sense of we, we, we just go to church and that's what it means to be a Christian. Let them see that what it means to be a Christian is to follow Jesus every day. And it's to follow Jesus in every area of our life. It's not to pick and choose certain areas. See, religious folk come to church and they put this great arrow. How you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And when they leave, they don't speak to their spouse all week long. Religious folk carry in their hearts unforgiveness and decide that no matter what the preachers say, I'm going to remain the same. Religious folk are people who care more about how they look on the outside than how they look on the inside. Religious folk are toiling and working hard to put up a show in front of Christians in order to fit in. But when they're not in front of Christians, they're like, whoo, Lord. Now let me tell you what I really think. <laughs> Religious folk pick up what they want to pick up and put it down when they want to put it down. They make their own rules. These are the rules. And if you don't keep my rules, you're not a real Christian. It's not about your rules. It's about Jesus. Do you have a heart of mercy? Is your heart broken over the state of lost people? See, Jesus told his disciples, he says, follow me. But that wasn't it. He says, and I will make you fishers of men. It's not just about following him. But it's about fishing too. And the more you follow him, the more your heart will become merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And one is not given a heart of mercy unless they are truly following the God of mercy and not religion. May God give us all the grace to rest in Jesus. When we come on a Sunday morning, we come to worship the one who has given us rest. We come to sing about the one who has freed us from our toil. We come to gather together with people who are living counterculturally, with people who are rejecting religion, with people who see Jesus as great, we come to say, Lord, we are yours. Motivate us. Encourage us. Keep us in order that we would go out into the highways and the byways and the compel lost souls to come. We do not come to check off a list. We come because our names have been listed in a book of life, that our names appear in the pages of heaven when our names do not deserve to be in the pages of heaven.
Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for the good news. I visited a mosque on Friday. Mosque is where Muslims go to worship. And I was pretty nervous going in, to be honest. Because <laughs> uh, I, I didn't know a whole lot what to expect and didn't want to be disrespectful to their rituals. So I talked to one of the leaders and asked, could I just stay on the outskirts and observe? And I observed. I observed them going up and down and doing these prayer rituals and doing their, their things. And I listened to their, uh, their teacher teach. And I left saddened but encouraged. I left saddened because everything he talked about was about their works and was about how them praying five times a day and them doing this is, is what's going to help them make it to heaven. And he kept saying these words. He kept saying that your good deeds must outweigh your bad or you won't make it in. And I began to think, God, I'm so glad that that is not the true requirement for salvation. Because our, our good deeds is not, it, it, see, see, sin is not just what we do. It's what we think that's, that's contrary to God. And I know that it is a very good chance that my bad thoughts outweigh my good deeds. But you know what was interesting? Is that after the service, many Muslims were, were there, it's all men. They came up to me, uh, about four of them, and they saw that I wasn't a Muslim. And do you know what they did? They sat there and talked to me about my need to be a part of Islam. And they were sincere. And I listened. And I got their, their, their phone numbers with the hopes of, of hopefully being able to sit and, and to talk the gospel. I didn't confront them then, but I listened. And I thought to myself, when a non-Christian comes into our church, when a person that we know comes into our church, do we care about their eternal state? Do we care to think about whether or not they have given their life to Jesus? Or have we done our religious deed of the day by leaving? Let me ask you another question. When was the last time a, a person walked up to you in public to share the gospel to you? If you were lost, if you were a non-believer, if you did not know Jesus, did, did somebody come up to you in, in recent months or recent years to see it if you did and to offer you hope and joy? I'll be honest. I sat down and I thought about that question. Sister Taji, I don't think I've ever had someone come up to me and ask me on the street, about whether or not I was a Christian. I've had Jehovah Witnesses ask me that question. I've had Muslims ask me that question. I've had Mormons ask me that question. But I have never had a Christian to ask me whether or not I'm saved. I just wonder. I'm just pondering. I'm just wondering. I just wonder. I wonder if many people who say that they're Christians, if being a Christian to them means coming to church on Sunday and surviving. I wonder if the end goal of many of our walk with Christ is just to come to church and to get by. If it is, you may not, you are not focusing on the right thing. You're not focusing on the person of Jesus. On who he is and what he has to offer. As the people of God and as the people who gather, the congregation who gathers at Forest Baptist Church, our goal as individuals must be to know Jesus for ourselves. 
not to know religion. And we must beg God to give us his heart. A heart that says, Lord, I don't just want to make it to heaven. But I want my neighbors and my co-workers to make it to heaven. Thank you for your time. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are truly good. Father, all of us at times, we fall into religion. We fall into trying to keep a, a set of rules and rituals as, as if that's what saves us. Lord, I know that I all too often I, I can be guilty of that. So Lord, I repent and I pray that you will leave us all to repent. Help us, Father God, to see Jesus and to love Jesus and to love his word. Help us, Father God, to see that you care more about us than anything. Help us to see the Christian life as a, as a life of sanctification, as a life that will involve us sometimes falling in sin, as a life that does involve us suffering, but as a life that is found in Christ and that through Christ, Lord, we can overcome our suffering, we have been forgiven of our sin, and we are cherished by you. Help us, Father God. Help us to be different, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thank you for offering us good news. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, the doors of the church are open.